Okay, welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the Art and Art History Podcast with someone who really has no business having an art history podcast. I hope everyone is healthy and happy and excited about diving deeper into Frida's story. Before we get started, there is actually some big show news that I'm still a little thrown by. Back in September on International Podcast Day, which I didn't know was a thing, Business Insider put out an article of their list of top 20 podcasts that will make you smarter. And this show is on the list, which is bananas because the rest of the shows on that list are legitimate shows. When I scrolled down the list and saw Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk, I was like, okay, well, clearly there's some sort of mistake. The only list I belong on with Neil deGrasse Tyson is a list of dudes who are alive and have facial hair. That's pretty much it. So if you're looking for podcast recommendations, go check that article out. I put the link on my Instagram bio, and there's a bunch of amazing shows on there. Hardcore History's on the list, which was a huge inspiration for this show. And it really was crazy to see. I for real record this in my apartment closet, sometimes my parents' closet when I'm visiting for the holidays. And frankly, it's weird because I feel like this show is cheating because the stories themselves are so interesting. Learning through historical voyeurism, it's great. Frida's story in particular, I am endlessly fascinated by her story overall, though especially the story arc over the next few episodes. Everything that happens over the next few episodes, the journey to the Frida the world knows now, which we will be peeling like an onion, all of it was triggered by the trolley crash. The end of the last episode was rough. When we were last with Frida, her body was completely penetrated with an iron rod and straight up mangled. She's barely holding on to life in a gross hospital, and if the injuries don't take her, she's a tiny infection away from it being game over. 32 surgeries. That's what Frida will go through in her lifetime, most of it as a direct and later indirect result of the accident. Right now, though, Frida's body is so messed up that she'll go through a chunk of those surgeries just to try to put a lot of her back together again. It's like a real-life Humpty Dumpty situation. Her right leg was almost turned to mush. During Frida's recovery, we are going to get some more weird family stuff, physical pain, mind-numbing boredom over a period of months. So I thought I would start out this episode by giving us a light at the end of the tunnel to help us get through this next part. There is a photograph of Frida and some of her family and extended family that I'll put up for this episode, and I don't know what the expected recovery time is when your body is crushed between two separate forms of transportation, but this was taken surprisingly quickly after the accident. The photo is of Frida with Matilda, Christina, Adriana, and her husband, and some extended family that was taken on February 7th, 1926. This photo was taken only five months later. This was a Kahlo family photo day. All of the women are wearing dresses, some have on necklaces and bracelets, and they all have those like flapper-style haircuts of the day. All of the women, that is, except for Frida, who's wearing a full three-piece men's suit with her hair slicked back and her forearm propped up on her uncle's shoulder like either one of them will pull a Michael Corleone on your entire family. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And she's wearing this full men's suit in a family keepsake photo with what I believe is one of Matilda's 94 brothers and his family, a bonkers Catholic family, shortly after what I contend was one of the hottest moments in Art Hole's history, though something that her family was very ashamed of, when Frida was caught having an affair with a female librarian who also works for the government. And I apologize for being gross, but I'm pretty sure I saw a very similar movie in 1996 on Cinemax at around 1 o'clock in the morning. 
So far, after however many hours and crazy stories across each artist, the only two relationships that I was like, yeah, I could really get behind this working out were Caravaggio and Mario. It's me, Mario. And Frida and the female government librarian. Maybe the librarian is in horn-rimmed glasses and a pencil skirt, standing on one of those rolling ladders confirming text in the leather-bound first edition of Dante's Divine Comedy to solve a clue for a secret government mission, and then she lets her hair down and gives it a shake. Maybe that's not what happened. Who can say for sure, but I'm telling you I've seen this movie. The following movie has been rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. It is intended for mature audiences. Parents may wish to consider whether it should be viewed by children under 17. Cinemax will show this feature only at night. And this is an honest-to-God true story that has only gotten funny with time. Uh, but when I was like 13, I accidentally taped over my parents' wedding video with late-night Cinemax softcore porn. This is way back when people used VHS tapes. And I needed one, apparently, and I didn't check the label, or it was labeled poorly, and I, I shouldn't victim blame. This one was all on me. And they fired up their wedding video one night, and then nostalgia was ruined by Bikini Car Wash 2. It was their only copy of the tape. I actually got in a lot of trouble over that one. But anyway, outside of those two relationships, I've wanted everybody else we've talked about to break up. That's the other thing I'm learning throughout this whole process. History is riddled with awful relationships. Whatever relationship Frida ends up in, she'll be going into it with a noticeable amount of life experience, even at 18 years old, all the way from extreme and prolonged trauma to the wild throes of passion with Alejandro and the sexy librarian. It's also that experience that will help her have a grounding and a sense of self so she's not fully defined by her romantic relationships. Though that will be a push and pull during her life. Frida's identity being measured by her connection to another, to a partner, specifically Diego Rivera. And there's going to be times when it feels like Frida's a passenger, a side character in her own life and in our story. But that won't always be the case. You can't keep a six-year-old Frida who wrestles, the Frida who bombs a professor because he doesn't teach enough Hegel. You can't keep that person at bay forever, despite how much life tries to. And that can't be more obvious than by the piercing gaze that Frida has in this photograph from five months after the accident. It's like she's looking through the camera and at you and through you. You can see in that photo that Frida is on a different path. She has intentions. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. For now, though, we are in another period of time in a young Frida's life with Matilda Jr. at her side when she's encountering extended debilitating pain and a complete breakdown of her body. Her spine, just her spine, is broken in three different places, and I feel like I might have glossed over that detail in the last episode. Her back is broken in a bunch of places, and the only part of her body that's not wrapped up or in a cast is her left leg. It's bad. There were a number of studies done between the late 1960s and mid-80s that looked into the childhood experiences of prolonged pain. Issy Pulowski's Psychodynamics of Pain, The Spectrum of Pain by Richard Sargent, and I gotta be honest, I don't recommend anybody read any of them. They're horribly depressing. And I also feel terrible that that was an ongoing focal point of somebody's workday, deciding whether or not to leave a few minutes early to stop and get coffee before you had to go intensely study the pain of children for eight hours a day. The major takeaways from this body of research is what you'd imagine. Prolonged experiences of pain in children has a profound impact on the development of the sense of self. You don't trust your own body. And you don't trust your own body as you're surrounded by other kids your age who are running around and think they're invincible. So you feel even more different. 
In Frida's life, so far she's already had that childhood trauma at six years old that not only included prolonged excruciating pain, but a pain that left her physically different than the rest of the children, and we are right back there already. The one thing we need to be comfortable with up top, which I am admittedly not comfortable with, is talking about Frida's body and how her physical experiences will contribute to her emotional and psychological experiences, from her general well-being to sexual logistics and reproductively, we're going to run the entire gambit. Right now in the hospital, after the surgeries were completed to save her life and they rebuilt her right foot and leg as much as possible, Frida's body is tightly bound in this sarcophagus-like body cast, and she cannot move, and she just has to lay there on her back for a month. When she regained consciousness and realized where she was and what happened, she's terrified, vulnerable, and she did what any teenager would do. She asked for her parents to visit her in the hospital. They did not. Guillermo was so upset when he heard about what happened that Frida said, quote, It made my father so sad that he became ill and I could not see him for over 20 days. Unquote. In Matilda... Senior, not only did she not come to the hospital right away, she was so distraught that she didn't speak for a month. So when Frida is laying in bed, unable to move, and when Matilda Jr. isn't there or there are no doctors or nurses to talk to, it's just silence. The only thing Frida can do in that silence is think. And it's the thought of death that consumes her. How close she came to death. Every night before, she falls asleep, wondering whether internal bleeding may start again. She's also having flashbacks of memories, snippets of trauma. It's a common symptom of PTSD, which she undoubtedly has. She's waking up in the middle of the night, and she remembers the screams, and she remembers a specific image of a woman running away from the wreck, holding her own intestines in her hands. Quote, In this hospital, death dances around my bed at night. Frida is internalizing what happened to her. Her world is getting smaller, and the processing of this trauma is happening inside. She's learning to be her own companion and confidant. It's not like her parents are useful in helping her work through all of this, since neither of them are using their words, and Matilda eventually came to the hospital only twice. Once she was able to receive more visitors, friends would stop by to see her. It was an easy trip because the hospital was so close to the preparatoria. She just wasn't always awake when they came or able to accept visitors, but they stopped by. Rio Z. Valle's landscapes, the Cachucha, he came to visit, but Frida wasn't conscious. Fernando Fernandez came, a bunch of her other friends came, but not Alejandro. When Alejandro told the story of the accident, he said the only injuries he received were minor contusions, but that was his bravado and machismo talking. He was at home recovering from serious injuries as well. At least early on, that was the reason he didn't visit. As soon as Frida was physically able, she started writing Alejandro letters. This was the only way of communicating with him. And it's through these letters and the letters that she wrote him when she got home from the hospital that we can get some insight into the recovery process from the accident. As gross as Frida thought the hospital was, and as painful and lonely as it was there, there was only one thing that was worse, and that was going home. Coyoacan was far away from the school, and her friends were reluctant to go visit the house, not just because it was logistically difficult, but everyone knew that Matilda and Guillermo were super weird to be around, and her friends weren't too stoked about the idea of hanging out there. 
On October 17, 1925, Frida was able to leave the hospital and was sent home to, as she herself put it, quote, one of the sadder houses that I have ever seen. Even though she was home, she was still going to be bedridden for another three months and had to go through incredibly painful physical therapy. From a letter to Alejandro dated Tuesday, October 20th, 1925, quote, My Alex, at one o'clock on Saturday, I arrived into town. They brought me very slowly, but I still had two days of devilish inflammation. I am no longer in danger, and I'm going to be more or less well. The doctor doubts that I will be able to straighten my arm because the tendon is very contracted and it prevents me from moving my arm forward. And if I am to be able to stretch, it will be very slowly and with much massage and hot water baths. It hurts more than you can imagine, and at every jerk that they give me, I cry quarts of tears. My foot also hurts a lot since, as you must realize, it is very smashed and I have horrible shooting pains in the whole leg. With rest, they tell me that the bone will close soon, and afterwards, little by little, I will be able to walk. In the hospital, I could ask the boys everything, and now it is much more difficult for me to see them, but I do not know whether they will want to come to my house, nor do you seem to want to come." Unquote. The letter continues as Frida tells Alejandro all about the monotony of her days. She no longer has Matilda Jr. to keep her company because Matilda Sr. won't allow her in the house. She still wasn't over the Jr. eloping with Paco Hernandez situation. But she does have Christina now, who Frida calls Kitty. Christina's keeping Frida's spirits up as best she can. Every day, Frida's bed gets wheeled out to the patio so she can get some air, and then it's back to work straightening out the arm, which is still at a 90-degree angle. To help with the pain, they chloroform her, which only lasts about an hour, and then slowly pull her arms straight as she screams and screams and screams, still in a giant body cast. You can't keep chloroforming someone all day because it's dangerous, it can kill them, so they switch to injections of Sadol at around 6pm, which is a morphine-based compound and it had almost no effect on Frida, and eventually they gave up and just gave her a bunch of cocaine. I can't feel my face. I mean, I can touch it, but I can't feel it inside. That's pretty much the rotation. Chloroform, Sadol, and cocaine, and just cranking at that arm. All the while she's having bouts of nausea, she keeps throwing up, and she's also getting fevers. I'm guessing from infections. We're still about 15 years away from penicillin being used to treat infections, so her body is constantly fighting off whatever's infecting her. The worst one was a brutal and persistent inflammation in her pelvis. Pretty obvious where that one came from. And to make matters worse, pelvis was a word that Frida hated. And it was a word constantly used in her presence. She hated the word pelvis like most people hate the word moist. And I also don't like the words slather, panties, and flap. Those words are objectively gross. If you're a grown man and you use the word panties, you wouldn't 100% sound like a molester. While she was stuck at home, a few of the Kachuchas did come to visit, but Alejandro was noticeably still absent. He was pulling away from Frida and she wasn't handling it well. Her letters to Alejandro started to include outright pleading for him to visit, to even write more. He's sufficiently healed to visit. The current issue now was he's being a bit of a baby because he found out that Frida slept with Fernando Fernandez. This is that, I'm allowed to do it but I'll make you feel bad for doing the same thing nonsense. They were both young and passionate, and Frida's letters are starting to have an air of desperation. It's tough to see, though completely understandable. 
Frida wants some semblance of the life she had before, and Alejandro represents a lot of that. I think part of the pleading tone in the letters is a plea for the life that she knows that she lost. The monotony of the everyday must also be beyond grating. Her parents definitely aren't very fun to be around, and her nerves have to be on edge around everybody. Just for one goddamn night, can we please not listen to Blue Danube? She asked Christina for company, but Christina's starting to act out now, because Frida's getting all of the attention from the accident. It's not good attention, but it's a continuation of her getting whatever expressive love her parents can give. The other concerning medical issue right now is that Frida's not menstruating. Not because she's pregnant, but because she had the handrail of a bus pierce her uterus and it caused a bunch of damage. There's a lot of inflammation, probably infections all over her reproductive system. Things just aren't right with her from a gynecological perspective. I am not an OBGYN, clearly. Whatever's wrong, though, it's a new reality and consideration for someone whose goal was to one day have a baby by Diego Rivera. With Alejandro not answering her letters, her family doing whatever the hell it is they're doing all day, the one outlet that Frida does have, bringing us finally to the reason why we are here right now, is painting. In her isolation, inability to move out of her bed, Frida begins to seriously paint. Painting becomes a way to express herself and engage with the world, and her world right now is herself, the one person she can rely on, the one person she can explore and communicate with consistently, and you also can't become a serious painter if you're creating the same image of your bedroom wall. So Frida naturally turned to self-portraits to teach herself how to be an artist. Logistically, this makes all the sense in the world. When you paint yourself, you can navigate and investigate the infinite variety of feelings, moods, and expressions all on canvas, and you can do it on your own terms and time frame. To make this situation work, given her physical constraints, Guillermo had a mirror installed above Frida's bed facing downward, so all she had to do was look up. And portraiture, and more specifically self-portraiture, will be the predominant form of artistic expression that Frida will use to interact with the world. It is how we will track her story, her relationships with people, her emotional state, desires, her fears, and 100% disclosure, I did not care at all about portraiture or self-portraiture before starting this series. I thought it was boring. Great, there's an image of an old man from 1746 with his five hunting dogs in a ridiculous suit with gold ropes and medals, the high lord of who gives a shit trying to show his own importance and wealth. And portrait painting can be that. Boring. Phenomenally boring. Portrait painting can be a vanity project for rich people who want to solidify their place in history. It can also be a very intimate conversation. A conversation between the artist, the subject, and the viewer. The choices that are made within that portrait? That's the conversation. Minute details in the way a head is tilted, a Mona Lisa smile, a thousand words that are said with the eyes. If emotions are poured into a portrait, it lets us inside the artist's mind of what he or she really feels about the subject, him or herself, and the choices made within that painting, the metaphors, the symbols, decisions reflected in millimeters of paint, it becomes a secret language that if you allow yourself to get let in, you feel closer to Frida as a person, close to her family, her world, and her pain. 
and I'm sure that other artists paint unbelievable portraits and self-portraits, but the emotional vulnerability, the in-your-face attitude, and the knowing wink and a nod, nobody does it like Frida, and not according to me, though I am already sold. Years from now, Pablo Picasso would be corresponding with Diego Rivera, his old friend from the Montparnasse days, before Diego moved back to Mexico to start his murals. This is a conversation between two artistic prodigies, geniuses, and two of the greatest painters of all time. In Picasso's letter to Diego, he said, quote, Neither Durain, nor I, nor you are capable of painting a head like those of Frida Kahlo. Unquote. That is an unfathomably honest thing for such a narcissistic egomaniac to admit. That's the journey we'll take with Frida's portraits, and this is where it starts. She didn't go to art school outside of the classes she was required to take as part of her education. This was the education, just being with herself, with a mirror over her bed, in constant pain, unable to move her body, and painting the only subject she can convince to sit for an unlimited amount of time with the person she knows best, Frida teaches herself how to paint. After months of the occasional visit from friends, loneliness, and painting, on December 18, 1925, Frida was finally well enough to go into the city. That's a crazy short period of time from the crash to her being back on her feet. She wasn't going back to register for classes, though. That's over. Frida missed final exams in the fall, and she wasn't going back to school. Her medical bills were so expensive that it put the family back into near destitution again. She was going back to the city to find a job. And while she wandered around the city, she just happened to walk by Alejandro's house at around 10 a.m. He still wasn't really answering her letters because he was still upset about the Fernando Fernandez situation. So maybe if she walked by his house, she'd run into him. But he wasn't home. He also wasn't home at around 1.15 in the afternoon when she walked by again. And he wasn't there at 4 p.m. either when she just so happened to walk by his house again. Alejandro's being a dick. He is slut-shaming Frida and accused her of being loose, the same slight the Preparatoria kids used against Nawi, the model who was on Diego's platforms while he painted the creation. Frida was distraught, and she promised to reform her ways and to not be so sexually open and only dedicate herself to him, really almost pleaded with him to be married. Quote, If someday we get married, you will see how I am going to be full of good, almost made to order for you. Unquote. Frida is not where she wants to be right now. She has to find a job, but she can't really work consistently because she's having ongoing health issues. She's frustrated at the world, her body, and in the summer of 1926, she began working on something that would be her last-ditch effort to win back Alejandro. She was going to give him a self-portrait. This is her first complete painting. This is Frida emerging into a new phase of life with which she can see herself now being an artist. And with a self-portrait, she's risking full rejection from Alejandro, visually, romantically, and also of her new identity. Before we talk about this painting, what's considered to be her first complete painting in her artistic career, we're finally going to get to talk about her actual art. We have to talk about a drawing, and all of this will be up on this episode's post. On September 17, 1926, a year after the accident, a year to the day, the day that really is the beginning of a very slow physical descent to her ultimate death, Frida takes a pencil to paper. That's it. There are no oil paints, 
pigments, no canvas or galleries or art critics, magazine articles or crowds and fans. It's just a young Frida and a pencil. And she creates a drawing that is Jesus. A psychologist or a psychiatrist could write a substantial article on this drawing alone. This is absolutely fascinating. One of Frida's most well-known and iconic paintings, one of her masterpieces that we will eventually be plunging into is called The Two Fridas. This concept, the idea of the duality of Frida, that started now in the drawing of the accident. Well, sort of, I misspoke there a bit. Frida's duality actually started when she was six years old and in bed with polio. This is just the first time we're seeing it expressed within her art, so we're going to have to go back a bit. Six-year-old brains are fragile, and they also crave stimulus. They're oddly complicated, but also alarmingly useless. They're like sponges that soak up as much as possible, and they don't really know what to do with the information once they have it. They're like little tornadoes of firing synapses, juice boxes, and questions, and they're nowhere close to being developed enough to process significant trauma. And if you're a six-year-old listener, don't take that personally. Adults can't do it well either. You're just really bad at it because you're six. That's how this works. Now go get your parents. You should not be listening to this. And if you don't have parents, I don't know where I was going with that one. Go watch Annie, the original one. It's the hard knock life for us. It's the hard knock life for us. When Frida was basically imprisoned in her room with polio for the greater part of a year, while the rest of the world occurred outside, her friends playing and laughing without her, she created an imaginary friend. And a lot of kids have imaginary friends. I was super weird when I was really young. I had two imaginary friends. Their names were Pumo and Goya. And we'll just chalk that one up to one of the more embarrassing stories I'll tell on here. And yes, Goya liked the canned vegetables at the grocery store. One of my imaginary friends was named after a brand of canned vegetables. This is rapidly becoming a way more embarrassing episode than originally planned. Most imaginary friends are just that friends, other quote-unquote children. It's a way to create social interaction out of nothing. Puma and Goya hanging out, just a couple hombres helping to pass the time. And my one sister is listening to this right now, cracking up about the imaginary friends' names. I still get made fun of for that. Although she shouldn't laugh too hard, because her imaginary friends' names were Soso and Marlena, and she also had an imaginary cat named Fluffy. Glass houses, glass houses. And while we're here, congratulations, Mish, you're going to be an extraordinary mom, and we are all shitting our pants excited for you and Bobby. And my other sister just had a baby, too, and she's the most incredible mom, and my niece is pretty much perfect. She doesn't listen to the show, though. She's busy prosecuting murderers and being a first-time parent. That feels like a legitimate reason to not tune into this clown show. Also, I now totally understand why parents want to turn their kids into little versions of themselves. I'm only an uncle, and I'm like, I'm going to teach you guys everything. And that's scary, because when I was like 10, I could hold a full conversation about which Louis Gossett Jr. performance from the 80s was best. A lot of people sleep on Iron Eagle, and they shouldn't. Look, let, let me clue you into something right now. I've given this country 22 damn fucking years of my life. 22 years. I've seen young boys blown out of the air over the Pacific. Seen the guts sprawled all over the rice paddies of Vietnam. So every time somebody dies for this country, believe me, boy, I give a shit. God damn it, nobody talks to me like this. I'm not going to start now. 
He's so great. He's like if Nicolas Cage were black and bald. Well, Cage is pretty bald too, so I guess if he were just black and didn't wear the crazy wigs. Louis Gossett Jr. made the right call and he came on home and he embraced the look. That got way off track. Kids have imaginary friends and it's part of their development. We knew our imaginary friends weren't actually real. It just makes playing with Legos more interesting than doing it in silence. With Frida, though, when she discusses her imaginary friend, you get the sense that she might not be fully aware of what she's saying, and we'll talk about why. This is quite a bit different. From Frida's diary, quote, I must have been six years old when I experienced intensely an imaginary friendship with a little girl more or less the same age as me. On the glass window of what at the time was my room and which gave onto a Yande street, I breathed vapor onto one of the first panes. I let out a breath, and with the finger I drew a door. Full of great joy and urgency, I went out, in my imagination, through this door. I crossed the whole plain that I saw in front of me until I arrived at a dairy called Pinzon. I entered by the O of Pinzon, and I went into the interior of the earth where my imaginary friend was always waiting for me. I do not remember her image or her color, but I do know that she was happy. She laughed a lot. She was agile and she danced as if she weighed nothing at all. I followed her in all her movements and while she danced, I told her of my secret problems. Which ones? I do not remember, but from my voice she knew everything about me. When I returned to the window, I entered through the same door drawn in the glass pane. When, for how long had I been with her? I do not know. It could have been a second or a thousand years. I was happy. 34 years have passed since I experienced this magical friendship, and every time that I remember it, it revives and becomes larger and larger inside of my world. Frida's talking about herself. This other little girl, that's her split self, and splitting is a common psychological defense mechanism used by children when they encounter trauma. It's a way their vulnerable brains protect them from being completely destroyed by awful events that they can't process. There are a few great articles on this, uh, specifically a 1994 article by J.A. Berland in the journal Psychiatric Clinics of North America that describes how this happens in children who suffer abuse, but it's really applicable to all childhood trauma. It's not a multiple personality type thing, and I'm not going to do this justice at all, but splitting is a way for children to create dichotomies and help them compartmentalize in order to process why bad things happen. It's a, a subconscious survival tactic of the brain. Those bad things that happen, they go into the bad things bucket, and that's really not them. It's a separate form of themselves, because if everything goes into one bucket, then they can't protect themselves from the conclusion that they somehow deserved the trauma, because they can't fully understand the complexities of reality and why things are happening, sometimes for no particular reason at all. Life just sucks sometimes. For a six-year-old Frida, splitting was a way to save herself from the unrelenting pain in her leg and being alone in a room for so long. The Frida that deserved to be agile and running around, dancing and being happy, she was still out there, beyond the glass in that magical world. Even the name of the dairy shop through which Frida entered her fantastical world, Pinzon, it means finch, the small bird. That magical dancing girl was the little bird that could fly, not the one with her wings clipped. Then the whole thing about her not being able to see or really remember what the other girl looked like? Yeah, it's not possible for her to remember that because if she did remember, she would have to admit to herself that that little girl was really her and that fantasy would collapse on itself. Everything would go back into one bucket. 
And I'm about 95% sure that is at least a vaguely correct explanation of what's happening. For most children, the acuteness of splitting eases as they become older and get distance from the tragedy, and most effectively with therapy. Frida, on the other hand, keeps experiencing tragedy after tragedy in one awful event after another, so this splitting becomes a, a warm and comfortable safety blanket. That's how bad this shit gets. The girl beyond the glass from when she was six becomes more important, not less. This drawing of the accident, it is a shocking visualization of splitting even down to the way she spells her name. And there's no way this is intentional. That would require an alarming level of emotional and psychological self-awareness. Her behavior, decisions, all of Frida's actions that are profoundly against her own inherent self-interest later on make it much more likely that we're getting a peek into Frida's evolving subconscious. The drawing itself, the overall composition, without even getting to the details, is already divided in two. The top half is the external experience of the event. It's the accident, the bodies, the death and destruction, and it's very quickly sketched out. The lines are messy, the bodies are outlines and stick figures, there's a vague representation of trees and the sun to mark the time and place that the accident happened. It's very dreamlike in its lack of detail. Frida didn't spend a lot of time and energy on it, like she's distancing herself from what happened. The bottom half of the drawing is her more personal, more internal experience with the accident. She's lying down, fully bandaged, so we can see what she looked like as she recovered, and there's already two Fridas. The second Frida, the more aware Frida, is disassociated. She's a conscious floating head hovering above her broken body, split from the fear of the, at the time, near certain death, the pain, the frustration, the loss of her perfect life. And at the very bottom where she signs and dates the drawing, she signs it one way, then erases it or writes over it with darker lettering and signs her name with a new spelling. The German word Frieden, it's spelled F-R-I-E-D-E-N, and that's how Frieda's name was spelled in her birth certificate and how she spelled it in the beginning of her life, F-R-I-E-D-A. The girl who dances, the girl who has two legs that look the same, with a body that isn't broken and who was going to be a scientist, have lots of babies, she spells Frieda with an E. The new reality isn't that Frida anymore. It's Frida without the E, and she signs the drawing again over the top of that signature, F-R-I-D-A. If you zoom in really close to the left of the darker and more prominent D, you'll see the original E, and she'll bounce back and forth for a few years on spelling as she struggles with the woman she was supposed to be, a scientist, a wife, someone with a vibrant and healthy body, and the one she is now. While the psychological construct behind the shaping of this drawing may be unintentional and from the subconscious, her willingness to put all of her vulnerability into her art is a choice. The willingness to expose all to the world, that's the artist that's developing right now and that's who's finishing off her first self-portrait for Alejandro at the end of September 1926. In this first painting, Frida is obviously accentuating her beauty. There's a grace and femininity, and she's extending her hand to Alejandro as if asking him to pull her towards him. She paints her breasts hidden and completely covered up, although they're behind a plunging, plunging neckline. She then paints her face in a manner that screams collected and cool, suggesting she's confident in what she can bring to her relationship. 
People who know what they're talking about, so not me, say it's obvious that Frida is not a classically trained artist. There are certain aspects to the painting, like the proportions, some of the techniques. She's clearly innately talented, but there's something raw and uninformed about the way she approaches a canvas. Critics and the art world, everybody will later use the word primitive, but I don't know that I like that word because of the subtext. The painting is unconstrained? I don't know. It's not a painting created after years of having art teachers instilling an artistic dogma into your head or helping you with solutions to common problems. Frida jokingly called this painting Alejandro's Botticelli, hinting that she may have taken some inspiration from Botticelli's Birth of Venus painting, and I'll post that as well for a compare and contrast. The self-portrait must have worked, at least in part, because Frida and Alejandro have a bit of a reunion in the fall of 1926. That's also right around the time that Frida has what some biographers refer to as a relapse in her health. Health relapse does contain the implication that things were fine for a while, which I don't think they were. They can really be more classified as less shitty than before. The Kahlo family's financial issues affected their ability to give Frida the proper medical care when it was needed most, right away. Before she left the hospital, she really needed an x-ray to make sure her spine was healing properly. It was not, and they couldn't afford the x-ray to notice that. During a recent checkup, a surgeon saw that three of Frida's vertebrae were out of place. Her broken back wasn't healing appropriately, and this was a gigantic problem as we are now in the 1926 world of treating spinal injuries. You can just imagine what this was like. There was no inserting screws or rods. Orthopedic surgery was very limited, and any surgery pre-penicillin ran a real risk of killing the patient with a number of infections. 1926 was in the era of the medical corset. The prevailing theory was if you could reset the spine, then immobilize the body with a medical corset for an extended period of time, then I guess you just hope the spine heals as correctly as possible and things are cool when the corset comes off. This feels not scientific and like some shit I would come up with. She now has three vertebrae out of place, one leg shorter than the other, and a severely injured leg that gave her a limp and also required its own apparatus. It's throwing Frida's entire body out of alignment. This is one of the primary reasons her body will keep breaking down. The human body has evolved to function like a machine and her parts are all out of whack, with a limited capacity to be fixed. Through the fall and winter, Frida is painting her friends and family when possible. Some are turning out okay, some she's unhappy with, though a number of these paintings are lost to time. Even though at this point Frida and Alejandro are having a bit of a reunion, his family doesn't appear to be pleased with the potential for their son's life partner. Before he enters law school, his family sends him to Europe in March 1927 to study German, a trip that doubled as a move by his family to cool off the relationship with Frida, a sweet girl that's no longer a viable wife and mother to his children. He left for Europe without saying goodbye. Not cool, so that brief reconciliation was followed by a pretty harsh rejection. They write back and forth for a bit, but it's more Frida writing to Alejandro than it is him writing to her, and the letters are tough to read. You can almost sense that she's seeing her future slip away. While Alejandro is globetrotting in Europe, Frida is desperately trying to find a spinal corset that actually works and provides some sort of relief, and she's rapidly losing weight. 
One of the corsets she tried, and this will be a running theme for the rest of the series, instead of a solid piece, is more like strips, and that kind is supposed to be more comfortable. The problem is that corset bonds to your body, and it creates these giant sores which open up after you separate the skin from the corset, and there's a bunch of pus. I also don't like that word, and the sores are difficult to treat, and it's really gross. If they can't find a corset that works, the doctors will have to remove a piece of bone from Frida's knee and attach it to her spine, a procedure which Frida said, quote, Before all of that happens, I will surely have eliminated myself from the planet. Through the spring and summer of 1927, Frida is trying different corsets combined with traction. A lot of this requires her to again be immobile for months at a time. So it's more pain, loneliness, and she is getting visited by friends. Some of the Kachuchas came by, who she painted, and she also painted her sister Adriana. And a number of these paintings from this time were lost or destroyed, though she is getting practice. All the while, the world is passing her by outside of her window again. By the time Alejandro finally comes home in November of 1927, they were done for good. Frida did not take the breakup well. It didn't help that he fell in love with a good friend of hers, Esperanza Ordonez. By the very end of 1927, Frida has recovered enough to live somewhat of a normal life, and she re-enters the world. We're finally entering a new phase in her life. This episode has felt kinda small and cramped, and now it's about to get way bigger. Frida is physically capable in the most general sense. She can walk, she can function, sort of. All the time in the corsets and in traction had somewhat alleviated the issues with her dislocated spine. She is at least healthy enough to rejoin her friends and also meet the friends that they've been making while she recovered. Many of the Kachuchas have gone on to professional schools, law school, medical school, and now they are incredibly politically active. The post-revolutionary social and political turmoil is still red-hot, and the younger intellectuals of Mexico are at the center of it. There's all kind of marches and lock-ins, and they supported the election campaigns of the communist candidates. One of the student leaders that Frida knew from before the accident, but was getting much closer to now, was a guy named Herman de Campo. He was a young and brash leader who was handsome, free-spirited, and a passionate political activist. It was through de Campo that Frida was really brought into the fold of the Communist Party in Mexico. This is early 1928. The communist movement as a macro-political trend was pretty new, and by its nature was a disruptive force to political establishments wherever it popped up. And even within the movement, there was a lot of passionate disagreement as to which form of communism was best when they were in power. Between the party infighting and fighting the establishment, a two-front war, you often see communist leaders being exiled. Killing them makes them martyrs, so let's just kick them out. It's way better. So as much as there was a Mexican Communist Party, it was very much an international group. It was a destination country for exiled revolutionaries. Plus, the weather is great and the food is delicious. Why not? I'm sure Kyrgyzstan is a delightful place in the autumn, but if you had your druthers, pop down to Mexico and get some margaritas. Decampo was part of the group that surrounded and supported an exiled Cuban communist revolutionary named Julio Antonio Mea. Maya and DeCampo both attended the National University's law school, and in his spare time, Maya was trying to overthrow the Machado government in Cuba. Like, a lot. I can't imagine myself caring about anything as much as Maya cared about overthrowing the Cuban government. Shortly after Frida's introduction to Mayo, DeCampo was shot and killed in a park during a political rally. 
While Mayo was in Mexico, he was dating an Italian photographer, muse, artist, actress, and political activist who lived there named Tina Modotti. Tina Modotti is very important to this story, and they stop dating when Maya later gets assassinated in 1929 by the Cuban government. The life Rita is entering is a reality full of people who don't know the meaning of the word apathy. This sounds intense. Tina was about 10 years older than Frida, though as soon as they met, they became immediate friends and they will be lifelong close friends. Very few people that become friends with Frida, even some of the more unexpected friends that we'll talk about later, few if any stopped being friends with her, and Tina was kind of the same way. Tina Modotti was one of those roaring 20s bohemian global citizen types. She just sounds cool. She's the type of person who knew everybody, especially within the Mexican Communist Party. Of course that meant that she knew one of the party's most powerful and famous members, Diego Rivera. In the year since he and Frida met in the auditorium of the Preparatoria in 1922, Diego has gotten larger in every sense of the word. From his size to his celebrity, his artistic achievements, even his middle-aged man problems are larger, entirely self-inflicted but larger nonetheless. Part of me wants to say that now, at 41 years old, Diego Rivera is elbows deep in a midlife crisis, but he lived his entire life like it was a midlife crisis. Everything is now just amped up to an 11. By 1928, he is one of the most well-known people in the world, and his celebrity transcends even his art, which is now itself fully formed, and it's seen capturing the Mexican culture, identity, and history in oil paintings and mural after mural. With his art, he is forcing people to be confronted with Amerindian indigenous culture that was suppressed for so long and incorporating communist ideas and the value of the worker into his paintings, and he's doing it with skill and beauty. He is arguably the biggest celebrity in Mexico right now. His status got so elevated that he was at this point getting international commissions, some of which will actually get him into some trouble with the Mexican Communist Party. His most recent commission was at the Red Army Club in Russia, Diego is part of the Mexican delegation of, quote, workers and peasants who traveled to Russia to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 1917 Communist Revolution, the Red October. The commission was never finished, and Diego eventually was called back to Mexico in August of 1928 to help out with a presidential campaign. He told everyone that he came back because he was asked to run for president, which is almost certainly untrue. What is true, though, a truth beyond all capacity for doubt, is that Diego is having sex with really just as many women as possible, and he is not short of options. For a man who is described as, quote, undeniably ugly, countless women found Diego Rivera to be absolutely irresistible. He was kind of like one of those dogs that are so ugly that they're cute, and he was also brilliant and could bewitch people with his personality. At the same time, he was kind of becoming a sexual tourist attraction, which is pretty hilarious. Diego was constantly pursued by young American women who came down to Mexico for a vacation. That was his specialty. You went down, saw the pyramids of Teotihuacan, tried to sleep with Diego Rivera, maybe tried some pulque. When Diego gets back from Russia, he was just dicking down everywhere he went, way more than he was even before. And it doesn't matter to him at all that he's still married. His approach to marriage hasn't changed much. The one thing that did change, however, was who his wife was. That changes quite a bit. 
Since we last checked in on him, Diego divorced his first wife and got married to someone that we were briefly introduced to last episode, Lupe Marin. Lupe was one of the models who would sit with Diego while he painted the creation in the auditorium. She will be an important character in our story, again, like Diego, because Lupe was an important person in Frida's life. Frida and Lupe's relationship is fascinating to me, and so is Lupe and Diego's. Their marriage was a steaming mess. They had two daughters together, he cheated, a lot of course, and Lupe went back and forth from accepting the cheating as just being part of his nature to boiling with rage. One time at a party, Diego's current mistress was in attendance and Lupe lost it. She pulled the woman's hair out and started to beat the shit out of Diego. And another time, after discovering a different affair, Lupe took some of his pre-Columbian idols. Diego was a big collector of pre-Columbian artifacts. And she smashed them and put them into a soup and served him soup with broken shards. The final act of disrespecting Lupe occurred before the trip to Russia and was really the beginning of the end of their marriage, and I also think one of the reasons he went on that trip as a cooling-off moment. Diego had an affair with Tina Modati, and it really wasn't the affair, though that was a sticking point. It was that Diego used Tina as a model, a nude model, in a mural at the National Agriculture School. That's the ultimate slight right there. If Diego uses you as a nude model, that means he's sleeping with you. We've discussed the artist-model relationship in pretty much every series, and he exemplifies this to the point of it being cliché. Obviously not every sexual conquest makes it into one of his paintings, so him using you as a nude model means that he feels differently about you. You're not just a sexual adventure on a Tuesday. And since Lupe was a model in that mural as well, he was equating his affair with the mother of his children. His personal life was a catastrophe, and all of these middle-aged man problems could have been avoided. They were all self-inflicted. When she was 20 or 21 years old, it's a little murky, but my guess is 21 because Diego didn't get back from Russia until August. It was at a party at Tina's house where Frida met Diego again. That's the most probable and widely accepted version of their reunion. Tina would hold these crazy weekly salon parties at her house. They were get-togethers for artists and revolutionaries and intellectuals, anyone of note that came through Mexico City. These parties got out of control. People would eat and drink, share political ideas and theories and argue and drink, sing and dance and drink more, and then they would switch things up a bit and drink a whole bunch more. As Frida tells it, quote, the meeting took place in the period when people carried pistols and went around shooting the street lamps on Madero Avenue and getting into mischief. During the night, they broke them all and went about spraying bullets just for fun. Once at a party given by Tina, Diego shot a phonograph and I began to be very interested in him in spite of the fear I had for him." Unquote. I want to be loved by you, just you and nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you alone. This is the second chewy morsel of history I would have loved to have been able to witness. Caravaggio's post-prison conversation with Mario in that party. For all of Diego's faults, which there were many, there was one trait that sort of explains Frida's attraction to him beyond his big personality, his fame, though her friends said that was definitely part of it. And even beyond his intellect, a lot of people she knew were smart. Diego genuinely loved talking to women and hearing about what they thought, what they felt, their viewpoints of the world. I don't know that you would call Diego Rivera a feminist necessarily. That's a bit of a stretch. 
For the time, though, he had a surprising appreciation for the intellectual and cultural contributions of women. This is back when women were almost universally thought of as cooks, cleaners, and baby makers. Even today, there's still a bit of an outstanding question as to how he got this attitude towards women, especially with him laying more pipe than a plumber and being the crown prince of infidelity. It's a weird juxtaposition. The prevailing theory is that he learned this mindset from the time he spent in Montparnasse, where women were intellectuals and artists and seen more as peers than in other places. So when Frida brought some of her paintings to Diego while he was working and demanded, quite forcefully, for him to give his honest criticism, he did. He said her self-portraits were her strength, and her voice started to get lost a bit when she began adopting techniques that she saw of his or other painters. That was really the beginning of how Diego and Frida spent their time together. It's not quite yet a courtship, but it's close. She would bring paintings for him to critique while he was on the scaffolds, they would talk and laugh while he worked, and she would tease Diego, which really pissed Lupe off. One of Frida's paintings from 1928 that they discussed was a portrait of Christina, and we haven't talked about Kitty in a while. Christina is grown up now, grown up for 1928, and she's no longer the, quote, chubby one. In one of Frida's letters to Alejandro after the accident, she has this one throwaway line, something about Christina being a pain in the ass, but also very pretty. It was just oddly placed in the letter. In this portrait, it would have been very easy, even at a subconscious level, for Frida's insecurities to come out and paint Christina as being less beautiful than she was, not aggressively so, just a few small choices here and there. Christina is younger, she's physically complete with two of the same legs, she's got that flapper style down to a T with her short hair, she's objectively gorgeous and got married in 1928 to a handsome young man, she'll travel the world, have lots of babies, you don't think Frida thinks about that stuff? She is now the only Kahlo daughter who's not married, at a time when you got married at a concerningly young age. Living at home with a limp, a messed up body, it's easy for any insecurities about this stuff to wind up on canvas. Frida didn't do that at all. This portrait of Christina is a celebration of her and her beauty. It's an older sister telling her younger sister that she's a beautiful little pain in the ass and the whole world will know it. Christina's wearing white, a symbol of purity, so it's likely a metaphor identifying that Christina's a good person. This is a portrait that says, I happily remember those times around the dinner table laughing while Matilda made us say our prayers. You're a little brat. It annoys me how pretty you are, but you're my sister and I love you. As an overall composition, historians say that there are clumsy and naive approaches to delineating space in Frida's early portraits, specifically here with the Rivera-esque leaves in the foreground and the small tree in the background. This clumsiness, this so-called primitive approach, will become an asset as her art matures. It's more honest. She's not trying to create masterpieces. In Frida's mind, it's obvious that it's more important to capture someone's personality in a portrait and also fully explore the relationship between everyone, to have that intimate conversation between artist, subject, and viewer. All that art theory stuff is secondary. Diego and Frida were spending so much time together that Diego even used Frida as a model in his 1928 Ballad of the Proletarian Revolution mural series in the Ministry of Education. Lupe probably not thrilled about that one. At some point, the modeling and the conversations and art criticisms that occurred on and below the scaffolding, that wasn't enough, and the social interaction reached a different level. As Lupe tells the story, her and Diego were having an uneventful day. 
their daughters were running around, and Diego turned to her and said, apropos of nothing, quote, let's go to Frida's house. Uh, okay, where did that come from? Is that the girl who is always on the scaffolding when I come bring you lunch while you work? That girl, eyebrows, we're just gonna go to her house. What are we hoping to accomplish here? Who else lives there? Should we take the bus? I'll veto that one right now. How old is this girl? You do know we're married, right? Lupe, quote, I was shocked to see the familiarity with which an impudent girl treated him. She called him Miquatacho, this Frida Kahlo. It struck me as very disagreeable to see this so-called youngster drink tequila like a real mariachi. Diego was susceptible to love like a weather vane. Unquote. Now Diego Rivera, hero of the Mexican people and champion of Mexicanidad, is coming around the house of an unemployed photographer in this small village on the outskirts of the city on a pretty consistent basis. Now, mostly without Lupe. The neighbors were talking about this. Diego respects the conservative Catholic game, though. At first, he'll only visit the house during the day on Sunday, the day that obviously no sex is happening. It's Jesus' day. This is now a formal courtship. This entire situation must have been slightly bizarre for the rest of the family. Guillermo and Matilda, Christina, they don't know Frida will be one of the most well-known and revered women of all time. In their minds, she's a pity case, a broken young woman who had so much potential. Her medical bills are expensive, she's a huge financial burden to the family, and money is still very tight. All of a sudden, they have one of the most beloved men in the history of Mexico hanging out at the house on Sundays. A man who is rich, famously generous, who's smart and charming, and he's got his best schmooze game going on Matilda. It didn't work. She hated him. He's talking to Guillermo about pre-Columbian and colonial architecture, photography, trying to get in good with the dad. But if you look really close, you can just see his growing erection, throbbing through the crotch of his pants while Frida's doing the dishes and glancing over her shoulder at him. This is Diego Rivera we're talking about. You can see his heartbeat and the veins through the fabric of his jeans. This family isn't equipped for this, and once they understood what was happening, they were quite unhappy. Diego was infatuated with Frida Kahlo. She's becoming more active in the Communist Party, she started rejecting the flapper styles of the day, and she was wearing jeans and a leather jacket. She's awesome. We already know this. She also didn't kiss his ass and treat him like a celebrity. He wasn't the maestro as everyone called him. Frida's nicknames for him were Dieguito, Little Diego, and Panza, Belly. He was active in his continued support of Frida's art and her forming her own style, even as she took in the Mexicanidad movement, pre-Columbian imagery, European modernism. Diego was always there, not to tell her what or how to paint. He never taught Frida. There's a surprising lack of mansplaining here, but more to be used as a sounding board. Diego was worried that teaching Frida would ironically be the thing that ruined her as an artist. She would lose her unique voice. It's confusing. There are parts of me that really like Diego, but he's such a mess. As big as Diego's art was in the scale, his use of sweeping theories and creating large statements, Frida's language was evolving in the small details of portraiture. These can be choices in clothing, background, micro-expressions in the face, cheek coloring, metaphor layered on top of metaphor until a small canvas will eventually become a neutron star in its emotional density. In 1929, while dating Diego, Frida completed her second self-portrait. The differences between the 1926 and the 1929 self-portraits, when you compare them side by side, are pronounced. Frida is evolving as an artist and as a person. 
In the 1929 painting, she's using curtains in the background, which was a common colonial technique, but also an easy way for a new artist to set the surrounding space. And she's becoming a little more comfortable with including additional details. Her earrings, the clock behind her, she even has a pre-Columbian necklace on. If that first painting were a little more coquettish with her head turned to one side, this Frida is facing straight ahead and demands that you take her seriously as someone who is bright, confident, and focused. We are seeing a similar expression to the photograph we discussed at the beginning of the episode, and she should be confident. She has a new career ahead of her, Diego and Lupe got a divorce, finally, so him and his throbbing erection are coming to the house on Kayoa Khan more often, she's always at his mural commissions making fun of him and flirting, Christina's either pregnant at this point, or she already had her daughter Isolde. 1929 is turning out to be not that bad of a year. You know, considering. Their friend Antonio Mea, the Cuban revolutionary, he did get assassinated while on a walk with Tina Modotti. At first, the Mexican government tried to pin the whole thing on Tina. They released nude photographs of her to smear her reputation. That part sucked, but that was way back in January. The rest of the year, pretty fantastic. Frida and Diego, they were on a romantic high. And now that Diego is divorced again, it's the opportune time to move forward and make this official. So Diego Rivera asked Frida Kahlo to marry him and she said yes. When Frida told her friends, some of them were confused and asked about Alejandro. Rios Ivalles, though, one of my favorite cachuchas for his supportiveness alone, he was like, yeah, you need to marry this guy. It's Diego Rivera and he's a genius. When Matilda found out about the engagement, she flipped out and had a meltdown. Matilda went full protective mother mode. Diego was 42, had a bunch of baby mamas running around, was physically unappealing, a known philanderer, and worst of all, he was a communist and an atheist. It, what does that sound? Okay, now we can actually hear Diego's heartbeat through his constant pulsating erection. This is getting ridiculous. This is not what Matilda had in mind for her daughter. I believe it was Matilda who said this union was, quote, like a marriage between an elephant and a dove. Guillermo was a bit more level-headed about the situation, maybe even a little self-interested. Diego is so rich compared to them, he can not only look after Frida and pay her medical expenses, Guillermo and Matilda will likely see some sort of financial benefit as they're getting older and are themselves having more health issues. When Diego went to Guillermo to ask for permission to marry Frida, Guillermo said, quote, Notice that my daughter is a sick person, and all of her life she will be sick. She is intelligent, but not pretty. Think it over if you want, and if you wish to get married, I give you my permission. Unquote. Undeterred by the lack of support, on August 21st, 1929, Frida and Diego were married, and almost nobody showed up. Matilda refused to go, most likely because this was a civil ceremony at City Hall, not a Catholic wedding at a church. None of the sisters were there for unknown reasons. The only Kahlo family member at the wedding was Guillermo. The other witnesses to the ceremony were, quote, a hairdresser, a homeopathic doctor, and Judge Mondragon of Coyoacan. Then in the middle of the ceremony, nobody knows why, Guillermo stands up and says, quote, gentlemen, is it not true that we are play-acting? Unquote. That's it. I have no idea what he meant by that, but it does not sound positive. The officiant of the ceremony was the mayor of Coyoacan, the, quote, prominent pulque dealer. This is where the pulque thing comes back up again. It's something that Diego would constantly tell people when relaying their wedding story. 
how they were wed by the mayor who also was a pulque guy, the drink that was once taxed on a racial basis and is now a rallying cry. Then having a mayor, the whole city hall thing, as opposed to a priest in a church, that was a conscious choice to show their commitment to communism. There's a lot of messaging happening here. From the August 23, 1929 La Prensa wedding announcement, quote, Diego Rivera got married in the neighboring town of Coyoacan to Miss Frida Kahlo, one of his disciples. The bride dressed as you can see in very simple street clothes, and the painter Rivera dressed in an American suit without a vest. The marriage was unpretentious. It was celebrated in a very cordial atmosphere, with all modesty, without ostentation, and without pompous ceremonies. Unquote. For the wedding, Frida didn't wear a white dress, something that Matilda would have had a conniption over. Instead, she wore clothes that she got from a maid. Allegedly, that might be a bit of a Frida truth. I'll post their wedding photo, which was accompanied by the announcement, and in it, Frida is holding a lit cigarette. It's such a great wedding photo, especially when you compare it to Guillermo and Matilda's. So much has changed in Mexico between those two photos. Everything about this wedding, from what they wore, the location, reminding everyone that the mayor was a pulque dealer, this is consistent with the of-the-people reputation that Diego had, and it's very much in line with communist ideals. It's unpretentious, there's no involvement of the church, no opulent displays of wealth that should be redistributed to the poor. He wanted to keep that reputation going. Diego's fame and their involvement in politics will continue to require a lot of messaging. It's important to advertise your communist qualifications, especially when he gets in trouble with the group for doing just a lot of Diego things. The messaging thing may be fine now, but you can see how it might get a little annoying later on when your marriage is quite shaky and your spouse maybe cares more about the cause than being a devoted partner. After the ceremony, there was a wedding party, and I'm going to try to piece together for everyone the best I can what most likely happened. Again, lots of different versions of this story. Frida's version doesn't include some facts that witnesses saw, a lot of people are writing their own histories, so Diego's version's a bit different. It's a mess. The one fact that was consistent throughout the different versions was just how much tequila was consumed at this party, best described as beyond copious amounts of tequila. The wedding party was probably held at Tina Modati's house. That fits for a number of reasons. Frida said it was some other guy's house, but I don't think that's true. And one of the wedding guests that came to the party was Lupe Marin. This was Frida being inclusive, and it was an overture to Lupe. It's a very Frida thing to do. It's weird that we're getting to know her like this. I love the people that you love. That mentality. She was also the mother of Diego's children. I get it. I appreciate the gesture in doing that, but that's an idealistic young person mistake. Lupe was just dumped by Diego Rivera, something she undoubtedly blames you for. She's probably a little hot to the issue, it's fresh, and she's hated you since you were a child for this very reason. You were gonna steal her husband. Lupe did show up though, and she was having a great time, or it appeared she was having a great time, while everyone is crushing bottles of tequila, and she walked right up to Frida in the middle of the party, lifted up Frida's skirt and yelled to everyone, quote, you see these two sticks? These are the legs Diego has now instead of mine. That is an awful thing to do to somebody and have done to you on your wedding day. Touching on so many of your traumas, knowing what we know, it makes sense that Frida left that story out of her version of the events. In the magically real version of the story, that didn't happen. No need to include that detail. 
And this is going to sound crazy, but let's hold off on judging Lupe by this one action. No matter how cruel it was, and it was cruel, we are still building our story and there's a bunch of stuff that happens. I'm just saying let's not judge her yet. After that little incident, the party continued to spiral out of control. As Frida tells it, quote, Diego went on such a terrifying drunken binge with tequila that he took out his pistol, he broke a man's little finger, and broke other things. Then we had a fight, and I left crying and went home. A few days passed, and Diego came to fetch me and took me to the house and reform a 104. Unquote. It is safe to assume this was not how Frida imagined her wedding would plan out. And as imperfect and really as emotionally upsetting and triggering as it was, I'm actually going to say this is another one of those moments where we should sit back, be present, and enjoy for the sheer journey alone and from where this episode started. Frida went from almost dying in 1925, her body broken, to in 1929 being married to Diego Rivera. She called that one back in high school. She took a very unlikely path filled with events I wouldn't wish on anybody, yet as the saying goes, nevertheless she persisted. Frida will not have a boring life. I think that was one of her more serious concerns, besides the dying thing. She went from being destined to some sort of notability and success to being broken and alone, living in her small town with Guillermo and Matilda. Then she built her way all the way back up, charming people with her intelligence and personality. She's developing into some sort of an artist, though it's still unclear at this point how that's going to develop. Although very early in her career, Orozco thought she had quite a bit of promise, and Diego clearly does too. Frida will see the world, maybe even more so than she would have before. A callejera, a wanderer of the world's streets, the little finch beyond the glass. Why not pause the story here? We don't always have to have bombs dropped on us right away. Let's end an entire episode on a positive note and enjoy this. The new bride holding the cigarette and drinking tequila like a real mariachi. And Diego, he finally gets to whip out that throbbing hog and let it breathe. So you know he's happy. Breaking now is a natural transition to the next phase of Frida's life. Adulthood. That is just what this story needs. The complexities of being an adult layered on top of the craziness that's going on here. We are about to throw gasoline on the fire. When Frida was older, she would say, quote, I suffered two grave accidents in my life. One in which a streetcar knocked me down, the other is Diego. Not today, though. Today, Frida is a brand new bride, and most importantly of all, there's love here. A concerningly intense love between two people with strong appetites, passions, intellects, opinions, and needs. Everything is gonna be fine. This felt like such a bizarre episode. For everybody that's been rating and reviewing the show, thank you so much. Those translate to the show being referred to new listeners based on some sort of formula. I don't really know. And to everyone that's helping get the word out through word of mouth, you are the best. This whole thing doesn't work without you guys, and it's working. The show is actually being taken seriously, which is nuts, and I'm sure ill-advised. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care of yourselves, and I'm going to go take a nap. Se van llora un cariño, un cariño malogrado. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no puede caminar porque le falta, porque no tiene marihuana que fumar. Ya el águila voló.
nopal quedó solito en su pico de tus amores.